There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. So we're joined by a, a special guest, um, Brian Richards. That's right, right? You got it. With the USGS. The United States Geologic Survey and at the National Wildlife Health Center. At the National Wildlife Health Center. In Madison, Wisconsin. Now, just to, just to start, the most basic thing, because we're going to talk about wildlife diseases, particularly chronic wasting disease. But um, how, how, does the, how, how, does the, how does wildlife disease sort of fall under the, under the, the bailiwick, you know, or uh, how's the USGS tangled up in that? Instead of because I would hear that when I was younger, and I would think that the USGS mapped mineral deposits and USGS is formally known as the Science Wing or the Science Bureau in the Department of the Interior. Okay, uh, but the National Wildlife Health Center originated back in Fish and Wildlife Service, and we were removed from Fish and Wildlife Service and moved over eventually into into USGS as part of that larger. Uh, conglomerate of science. So USGS does a lot of different things. Uh, earthquake monitoring, volcanoes, natural hazards. Um, there's a water science center virtually in every state that, that deals with water issues. But we also do uh, issues in, in um, environmental health, uh, biology. So what's kind of interesting with uh, the National Wildlife Health Center is we are a, a, very, a national center. 
So we deal with wildlife health issues across the country and internationally as well. Our main campus uh, being in Madison, Wisconsin, we have a satellite um, in Honolulu, Hawaii. You know, I've been trying for the last 12 years to get relocated out there, but you know, so far, so far it hasn't worked. Yeah, and you grew up here. You grew up here in Wisconsin. I did. I grew up just a, just maybe an hour, hour and a half northwest of where we are now on a dairy farm, and and so really spent the better part of my life living, you know, outdoors and enjoying hunting and fishing. You know, just like you know, very similar to the property we're on here today. Just a fantastic place to grow up. And then spent some time in Texas. I did. Um, after I got done with grad school, uh, you know, you're you're poor, you need a job, and uh, you start sending out applications. And and uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, you know, for whatever reason, uh, decided to entertain me down there for about 11 years. Uh, so I worked at the headquarters for Parks and Wildlife in in big game management. Uh, learned a lot. Texas is a very fascinating place. Um, you know, from an ecological perspective, I think there's 10 distinct ecological regions in the state of Texas. There's something very neat about virtually every one of them. Uh, Texas being so large, uh, you know, when I was there, you know, we figured it was about 14 hours from east to west, you know, from Houston to El Paso, and probably about 14 hours drive from Brownsville up to Amarillo. So, you know, just a, a, a tremendous space. Uh, but, uh, Game management there is a lot of fun. Uh, there you're dealing with, you know, white-tailed deer, the premier, but you get out in West Texas, you got mule deer, you got pronghorn antelope, you got elk in a few places, so a lot of diversity. And you have, you know, desert bighorn sheep that the state has spent a lot of time and effort restoring sheep, putting them back on the mountains in, in parts of Texas. A fantastic place. That's way off subject, but how's that project going? Do you still follow that? I keep track of... Uh, of Bighorn sheep in general from yeah. a disease perspective and uh, and disease is a very prominent issue and a, and a limiting issue for sheep management across North America. It's, it's always pneumonia, right? It's a pneumonia complex and when you when you look at the causative factors, it links back to domestic sheep virtually mm-hmm. every time. And, and the states realize that and you know, if you want to boil it down, if you put desert sheep in the same space or time you know with domestic sheep uh, the 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 wild sheep are going to die you're going to lose them it's pretty it's that simple so there you know sheep management is like a lot of other species management obviously you need habitat you know you need you need spaces for them you might need to engage in some sort of predator control early on to get them established but disease is the limiting factor when it comes to sheep pretty much across their range uh, there's a few places where um, where state management agencies game management agencies uh, identify that there is contact physical contact or close contact between domestic sheep and the wild sheep They'll go out and they'll take a herd off a mountain just because they, they realize that disease, if it gets engaged, you know, embedded in that herd on one mountain, it'll spread from there. Yeah. So, you know, pretty dramatic. Sounds pretty draconian. But in order to keep sheep out, of the, out there, you know, we have to do some pretty, pretty harsh things. Now, with the bighorn thing, with the desert bighorns in, in Texas, how many are there in Texas? Great question. I, I mean, do you have a ballpark? You know, I, I have like this very like uh, like this hunter centric way I look at it. And I know I think they give out 
a tag, right? There's, Texas gives out like a bighorn tag. It's pretty limited. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's probably a few hundred desert okay. sheep. Um, some of those are going to be on public land and some of them are going to be on private land. So the state manages, you know, pretty tight, you know, hunting access, trying to afford, you know, the, the great opportunity. And so I think, you know, I, I don't keep track of it because I haven't been in Texas for, you know, 12, 13 oh, years okay, now been quite so, well, yeah. since I've been down there and engaged in management. Uh, but at that point in time, it seems like we were harvesting or giving away or allocating opportunities to harvest two or three rams per year. Yeah. And they were great opportunities. Uh, the, the neat thing, and I'm not sure if they're still doing it, they called it, I think it was called the Big Time Texas Hunts. And people could enter into a drawing and the winner uh, got a whitetail hunt, a mule deer hunt, a pronghorn hunt, and a desert bighorn ram hunt. And they were all quality. They weren't guaranteed hunts. Yeah. They were quality hunts. You had that, to all work. Hit, that hit all at once. Mm-hmm. You, you, had, you had to work. You know, but the people that won that, that was like you know, from, a, from a big game hunting standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how could you do any better than that? You know, you mentioned predator control ahead of the, some of the reintroductions they've done with those. I remember, man, a long time ago when I was, uh, I used to do a bit of fur trapping and I was reading an article in Trapper and Predator Caller magazine and it was the article, something like the $500,000 lion. And it was about, they did a reintroduction, you know, and moved in a bunch of sheep into this area and then a single lion systematically like eliminated the whole reintroduction. Well, and that, so he got, he picked up the name of what that whole project cost. <laughs> well, and you think about it, you know, you're you're putting sheep on a mountainside that they're not familiar with. Yeah. And that cat is familiar with every nook and cranny, every water opportunity, every ambush spot, you know, on that mountainside. So who's got the advantage? Yeah, he just thinks a bunch of weirdos moved into town who are like very easy to kill. Yeah. So I can, you know, I can really see there's a place for predator management early on, uh-huh. you know, to help those herds. If you're going to go to the effort of trying to reestablish those sheep on that mountainside, it does. It kind of makes sense to try and give them the best opportunity they can. But once they're once they're established, once those sheep know what's going on, I mean, they they evolved with predators. Yeah, so yeah. we don't we don't have to you know eliminate predators in order to have you know sheep on the mountainside. But maybe. Adding a little bit of balance early on seems pretty reasonable to yep. me. So from Texas, you moved up here to Wisconsin. I did. I moved back home. Yeah. And, and was the – how long is the – tell me again, I'm sorry. The wildlife disease was, – was the – National Wildlife Health Center. The National Wildlife Health Center. How long has that been in Madison? Uh, since its inception back in the, uh, back in the 1970s when okay. it was put together. And so we just had, uh, you know, it's over 40 years the center has been. It started out on the UW-Madison campus, and then we moved out into our facility. It's on the southwest side of Madison now. We've been there quite a while. How many, this might be hard to, this might be hard to answer, but if you had to take a ballpark, how many um, wildlife diseases are, are being looked at or are of interest to you and your colleagues? I mean, is it, is it like over a dozen or... Yeah, I mean, if you had to ballpark it, well, 
we're interested in anything that results in mortality events in wildlife. So we don't really look at the single cardinal that's laying outside the plate glass window because it's probably pretty (laughs) obvious what happened there. But people are our partners and our partners being states, other federal agencies, tribal partners report mortality and morbidity, um, sick or dead events to us. And that's when we get engaged and we try and help understand what the causative agent was what caused that mortality event uh, we've been doing that for a long time but when it in so that's a very important part of our work because our partners rely on us to be able to tell them what's going on and maybe parlay that into some management information but then the deeper we go we try and learn and, and conduct scientific activities research to learn more about the ecological conditions that lead to disease okay okay and then beyond that, start working into, where possible, into mechanisms that might be able to help prevent or mitigate the effects of disease. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of a number. I guess over the course of, of time, there have been maybe 20 big you know, disease issues that we have seen that we have worked on. You know, some of the recent ones, uh, you know, we'll talk about chronic wasting disease today. Um, not too long after CWD, uh, we got involved with a, what is now called white nose syndrome in bats. Uh, pretty interesting disease, a fungal disease that it's one of the rare diseases in wildlife that truly can impart population level impacts. Okay. Um, if you look w- at caves or hibernacula where uh, white nose syndrome has become established, we see regularly 90, 95% population declines in those hibernacula. And that disease has moved uh, quite clearly from east to west. And I believe it's been picked up now in about 26 states. So, um, and having pretty significant impacts. Is it, is it lethal to a lot of species of bats? Um, it, it's pretty much isolated to those species of bats which hibernate in caves. Okay, You need appropriate conditions for the fungus. It's a cold-loving fungus, so it prospers in these hibernacula, be they um, traditional caves where bats are, are hibernating, and sometimes in, in artificial or mines, things like that. Yeah. Pardon so, my interruption. No worries. Hibernacula is a cave that bats cave that, use yep, that, for that they hibernate in. Gotcha. You bet. And, and is there something to do with that one where... Um, they feel that some of that spread is coming from humans going into caves. That's a cons- like you hear about that. That's a consistent feature with disease in general. Certainly, uh, we we expect that bat to bat, you know, movement of disease occurs with white nose syndrome. But there's also a possibility that cavers, spelunkers. Um, with their equipment could be moving that fungus, that infectious material from cave to cave. So part of the management um, scenario being enacted by states and federal agencies is limiting access to caves and also encouraging 
um, spelunkers, cavers, to thoroughly decontaminate all their equipment. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're crawling, you know, in through a cave, I mean, you're in muck and, you know, you look like you've been crawling in a cave. And so certainly if the, if the fungus responsible for white nose is in one cave, you come out of that, there's a high likelihood that you've got contamination on your ropes, on your gear, on you. And so if the next day, you go, you know, three, four hundred miles to another cave, go in there with the same equipment. It's easy to understand how you might be moving infectious material. Now, it certainly looks like most of the movement of white nose syndrome is associated with that bat to bat movement. It's just disease. like a gradual movement. Yep. But now, uh, a year ago, uh, white nose popped up in uh, the state of Washington. It's a long ways from, you know, the most, you know, the other closest, closest places. Uh, so you got to ask a question. How did it get there? And you could go back to the original question. How did, you know, the, the fungus get to North America? Turns out that this fungus has been in Europe for probably for a long time. And uh, the hibernacula there, the caves where the bats are there, seem to be in general maybe lower densities of bats. And so a, a balance has uh, created over time where the disease doesn't manifest in, in large mortality in the European bats. Uh, now, somehow that fungus got brought over to this side of the large pond and got into hibernacular cave systems where we have these incredible densities of, you know, tens of thousands of bats, you know, congregated in the wintertime. Put a little bit of fungus in there. Uh, the bats are hanging in there for, well, literally hanging in there, I guess, over the, over the course of the winter. And it provides an opportunity for that fungus to move bat to bat to bat to bat in that colony. Then in summertime, those bats may commingle with bats or, uh, that are coming from other hibernacula, or then they may in fact themselves spend the next winter in the next hibernacula. And so you can see how that fungus has an opportunity to move. But it's how how like, long does the fungus take to be fatal? Probably most of, uh, and this is not my area of expertise, but I'm going to say probably most of the winter. Um, so the, if the fungus is in a cave, it's going to get on a bat soon after, you know, they move in for, you know, for hibernation season. And then, you know, uh, I think we see most of the mortality kind of in the dead of winter. Oh, so the bats, would, the bats will sometimes die in the cave. Some of them will die in the cave. Um, another thing, that one of the things that people uh, observe is, um, you know, bats flying around in the dead of winter, okay? Okay. When those bats are, are all reliant on insects as their food, and if it's zero degrees outside, that bat is, there's no food available. So something has aroused or woken that bat up, and it could be, you know, the discomfort associated with, you know, having a fungus all across your body. Uh, you know, they're, they're using energy resources. You know, they're in a very delicate balance when they go into hibernation. So they don't have a ton of energy left over to spare. So maybe that, that fungus is causing some irritation, you know, some physical yep. irritation, some problems with uh, thermal regulation as, as the fungus is, is, might be causing holes in the patagium on the bat's wing. So they're, they're running out of energy. And if they're, if they're completely out of energy, they're going to have to go outside and try and hunt. And hunting in January in northern latitudes is not going to be successful. There are no, there are no um, insects available. 
So I think that that contributes to the disease is that, you know, they're they're short on energy come middle of winter mm-hmm. and they just can't make it through. Yeah. So jumping on from there into CWD and the reason I like kind of the reason that our audience, well, I know the reason our audience is interested in CWD because we have a lot of people we hang out with and who listen who eat a lot of venison, okay, avid deer hunters. And the question we get all the time is like, what do you think about CWD and what's going to happen with CWD and is my deer safe to eat? Would you eat a deer if it had CWD? And um, I'm always like, I'm always uh, brimming over with opinions about everything, but I'm always really hesitant to talk about something that has so many question marks. And I think we'll probably, in talking to you about this, we'll probably butt up against a lot of those question marks, maybe to a point where you don't even feel like, you know, where you, you feel like you've moved beyond the known, the known science and, and you're just going into pure speculation. So I realize that's going to happen. And if, and if you do get up to a thing where I'm asking you an opinion and you don't want to give it, that's great. But I think that a safe way to begin in talking about this, can you explain the relationship? between when we hear about mad cow disease, we hear about chronic wasting disease, and then we hear about Jacob... Kreutzfeldt Jakob's yeah. disease. Okay. They're all kind of cousins, right? I mean, can, can you break down that family tree? Sure, I can and, try and to. And Scrapey is another one, Scrapey's right? Scrapey is another one. Yeah. Transmissible mink encephalopathy is another one. Okay. So, all right. All of the diseases you mentioned, CWD in deer, scrapie in sheep, BSE or mad cow disease in, in, in cattle. And that's bovine spongiform? Bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Okay. Kreutzfeldt-Jakob's disease in humans. There's another one in humans that we don't see anymore. It's called Kuru. Okay. All of these diseases are members of a family of diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies or TSEs. Great big long words, and you look it up in the dictionary, and it boils down pretty simple. Encephalopathy is a disease of the brain, okay? Spongiform means spongy or holes, and transmissible means very simply that a disease can be transmitted from animal A to animal B. So transmissible spongy brain. Yeah, something like that, something like that. And so, but it's important to understand the the source of that sponginess or the holes in the brain as well. These diseases are the causative agent is a protein, okay? Uh, Being very different than virtually any other disease we know of. You think of viruses, we think of, you know, bacteria, we think of, you know, in the case of white-nose syndrome, you know, an invasive fungus, okay? All of those are, in essence, living entities. They have nucleic material. They, so we can see how they can reproduce. We can see how they can evolve over time. So you come back to the, um, the causative agent for TSEs, a protein that's referred to as a prion. And so you get into, it's kind of challenging to, to put this in the same sense as, you know, viruses and bacteria because they don't have um, genetic material. So these prions... It's a living thing though, right? Well, not really. A protein is not necessarily a living entity. Uh, We don't... But, but, I mean, but it, it causes... Causes uh, You'll explain what happens. I'll try. I'll try. Yeah. So all mammals produce... 
a normal cellular prion protein, okay? It's a chain of amino acids. It's about 250 long. So it's a relatively small protein. And so if you go back to uh, what you learned in, in biology class about proteins, it's a chain of amino acids that then folds up into a three-dimensional shape, okay? So all mammals produce normal prion proteins. We're not certain exactly what they do, but they, they're very efficient, okay, in the body and produced by all mammals, and it seemed like produced a lot of normal cellular preamp protein in the central nervous system as well. When a preamp protein is produced, it's uh, produced uh, in, in, in an extracellular environment or, or coded for, it does whatever it does. It might be involved in intracellular communication, but then that normal cellular preamp protein is broken down it's recycled by the body, has a half-life of maybe between four and six hours. So it's produced, it does what it does, it's broken down by the body, and then recycled into its normal parts. Okay? Then there is this disease-associated prion protein. It's the exact same sequence of amino acids. It's folded up into a different three-dimensional form. So if you think of if you took a piece of... Uh, of a really old rubber band, you know, yeah. that's been sitting in a drawer for several years. It's wound up into a three-dimensional shape. So if you think of that as the normal form, and then you stretch it out and you let it go, and it, and it snaps back into a different form, that's in essence what we're looking at, okay? A different three-dimensional form of the same protein. And this different form, the disease-associated prion, has radically different properties. Um, I mentioned a normal cellular prion protein breaks down on its own in about four to six hours or has a half-life of four to six hours. The disease-associated form is persistent. Um, it it's, can persist in the environment for years, potentially up to decades. Okay? It also cannot be broken down by ultraviolet light. Um, it's very uh, insensitive to changes in temperature. So if you want to destroy uh, disease-associated prion protein, you'd have to get it up to maybe 600-plus degrees centigrade. So you're not going to cook it out of a, out of a steak, per se. Yeah. Okay? So a radically different uh, protein, it's the same protein with radically different form and radically different characteristics. It looks like um, this is a, a more or less like a, a template where a single disease-associated prion protein enters into a healthy, susceptible animal. That disease-associated protein makes physical contact with the normal cellular protein, causing it to unfold and refold into its own form. And then moving on, so creating kind of a cascading interaction where the disease-associated form takes over the system. Okay? And the disease-associated prion protein in the body is associated with neuronal death. And so when we talk about that, that spongy appearance of the brain, those are holes where neurons used to be. And as, oh, really? I and, didn't realize that. Yeah, and as the disease-associated prion proteins come in contact, we don't know the exact mechanism of how they kill neurons, but they do. They, they result in neuronal death, leaving those microscopic holes in the brain. 
So that's the physical mechanism of how we get to you know that trend, that spongiform encephalopathy. So without equipment, because you with a naked eye look at like a, a, a grossly infected brain and tell. No, you wouldn't. The holes aren't quite that large, so the neurons aren't that large. You'd yeah, but I'm saying even if it, so, even so, it would appear even if even if it was if this brain was like racked with the stuff, it would never like shape change the form of the brain. You'd look at it and look like a normal brain. Unless you look at it under a microscope then with some special it. staining, then yeah. you would be able to see it. But the hallmark of, of all TSEs is progressive neurological degeneration. Okay? You slowly are losing the capability to be a functional being. And if you, if you look at Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, one of the human, the human TSEs, it affects, um, we see new cases, about one in a million to one and a half per million new cases per year in, in humans. The typical clinical figure is, in a, is a person in their late 50s to early 60s. You say one in, a, one in one million. One in a million in new cases per year. And is that, is that globally or nationally? That's globally. But is it, true, is it true in an international sense? Like, is it safe to say that? 300 americans a year get this yeah 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 probably pretty close if we've got 300 million we're probably looking at 300 new cases per year in humans in the united states and you know that's ballpark figure um horrific way to go uh, progressive neurological degeneration followed by death and we think about you know as these disease-associated prion proteins accumulate in the, in the brain and in the central nervous system, resulting in neuronal death, it's easy to see how, you know, once that reaches a critical mass, you know, inside of the central nervous system, um, uh, neurological degeneration proceeds fairly quickly and is followed by death. So that's the hallmark of each one of the TSEs. It was the same thing in BSE or mad cow disease, uh, where, you know, you probably remember seeing videos of cows that are just, you know, they're nobody's home. Yeah. Right. Well, that's they, it's reached that phase. Um, another hallmark of, of the TSEs is tremendously long incubation period. So in Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, we, you know, it, it it's hard to say how long that disease has been progressing in individuals, but it seems to manifest in that clinical phase of disease at the same time frame, that late 50s into early 60s. But you don't know when, like, it doesn't spontaneously generate. It has to be that, that the person, in the case of the, uh, of the human form, it has to be the per, that the person somehow took in the infectious the, agent. Yeah. In, that's uncertain. With, um, with CJD, Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, it's thought that most of the n- normal cases are sporadic or spontaneous in those individuals. That something just happened, okay, there during you know the course of the lifetime that started that cascading interaction with one or multiple prion, normal cellular prions, tipping over into that disease-associated form and starting that cascading interaction. So it's not necessarily that they rubbed noses with an, an with another infected person. Correct. In in the majority of cases in that classical CJD profile, either that or we have been unable to identify the moment, the causation, you know, the causative event. We can contrast that a little bit with another disease, a really remarkable disease called Kuru. 
Okay, Kuru was first uh, described uh, back in the 1920s, 1930s, someplace in there, in uh, Papua New Guinea, in a tribe called the Fore tribe, F-O-R-E. And the Fore had a rather, what we I guess we would consider an unusual trait. And they practiced ritualized cannibalism. Okay. So when one of their tribal members died, to honor that tribal member, they consumed the body. Okay? And somehow a TSC got into that population. And so when the ritualistic cannibalism occurred, it created an opportunity for transmission of you know, the disease-associated agent for the disease-associated prion protein. And so Kuru developed over the course of a few decades into an epidemic situation. It started very small. So when one person died of Kuru, uh, their body was consumed, maybe leading to other cases. They infected multiple individuals. Then after a, a fairly protracted incubation period, some of those individuals died. Very horrific death, you know, after, you know, severe neuronal de- degeneration. And then they were consumed. They were consumed. And yeah. so you can see how that cascading interaction. So there, very clearly, there was a, a, a consumption, you know, some sort of a, of a foraging habit which led to disease. That coincidentally, is identical or virtually identical to what happened with bovine spongiform encephalopathy or, you know, BSE, mad cow disease, where it, it seems like we were trying to create maximum efficiency in, in a livestock production system. And so there's a lot of waste. When you butcher a cow, there's a lot of waste. There's, you know, the, the offal, the hide, bones, things like that. And so we all realized that, you know, cows produce better with, on a higher protein diet. So it made sense. It made logical sense from a production standpoint to take the offal from, you know, when you're slaughtering cattle to render it, cook it, and then mix it up into a high protein food source, mix it with other, with other forage material and feed it back to cows. So in essence, what we were doing was we were creating cannibalistic cows, right? Yeah. You know, we're feeding cow back to cow. It's not a normal, it's an aberrant foraging behavior. So somehow we got the first case of BSE in a cow. That cow either died from BSE or was, you know, processed normally at, you know, for, for beef production, whatever the case may be. The infectious material being concentrated in the spinal cord and the brain of that first cow was rendered not quite effectively enough to to uh, um, to deactivate the infectious. Yeah, agent. you were saying that has to be six hundred degrees. Centigrade. Yeah, it didn't get it didn't get quite warm enough, <laughs> and so uh, that cow, in essence, was fed back to thousands. Those some of those animals developed BSE. And so you're trying to you know, maximize the use of the carcasses, so you grind that up and feed it back to more. And so it, it, the numbers look like, you know, there were probably potentially millions of cows at one point that were infected with, with BSE. Is that right? Really? And as soon as epidemiologists, you know, disease specialists figured out, you know, it seemed like, yeah, this has got to be a foodborne thing. And they were able to figure out what it was, banned 
feeding bovine protein back to other cows. And the cycle stopped, in essence stopped. And so we had an epidemic curve that ran like it looked like it was going straight up a mountainside. And as soon as you figure out what was going on and you stop that practice, the epidemic curve comes down the other side. Now, there's still a few cases out there periodically today, but not the volume that there were. Yeah, like the U.S. has only had one, right? Some cow out of Yakima, Washington, right? Well, that was the first one. We've had a few more than that. There's been some since then. Um, Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that... um, we can talk about how CWD moved around, but it looks almost certainly like uh, the United States gave Canada CWD um, through movement of, of captive elk uh, back in the 1980s or potentially early 1990s. Was that before they had identified it? Um, it was, we'd identified what was going on. Our scientists had, had identified what was going on, but it, it certainly it was prior to knowledge of how movement of, of animals could really contribute to movement of disease. Yeah. But it looks like almost certainly that we gave uh, CWD to Canada, and so maybe it was only fitting that they sent BSE back to us okay. in return. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well... What's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift 
especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, it's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving an Aura as a gift. You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So let me back you up a little bit here. I want to get to that, but let me back you up. Have Are there known cases? I should know this, but I don't. Are there known cases where... They could track the mad cow form having passed into a human. Like, do, do they are they able to able to trail that? Yes, yes, pretty clearly. Yeah, we mentioned Creutzfeldt Jakob's disease as being kind of that classic disease. The clinical profile is a person late fifties, early sixties. There's another form. It's called variant Creutzfeldt Jakob's disease. And the first cases were detected in, largely in Great Britain, uh, in the same time frame, a little bit later after the BSE crisis began in, in Great Britain as well. These humans were exhibiting very, you know, similar characteristics. And when they died, it was very apparent from, uh, from their autopsy, from looking at the spinal and the brain material that they had a spongiform encephalopathy. And they were able to tie that statistically back to consumption of beef from, you know, uh, from the, uh, from the mad cow or the BSE situation. So here's an instance, and BSE is a, is a, is a, is a very interesting disease that it was able to jump across that species barrier. So it, it was not just a disease of cattle. When we fed BSE-positive material to multiple other species, including humans, it led to disease. And so that variant CJD, variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease profile, seemed to be humans that were a lot younger, you know, typically in 20s, in 30s, things like that. So it looked like CJD, but it acted different. And so that was kind of the first tie. Was there a possibility that BSE crossed over? And now it's, it's fairly certain um, that BSE did cross over into humans, uh, bridging that species barrier. Um, and you might come back and wonder, well, where did BSE come from? Well, that's an interesting question, but one of the possibilities is that, you know, it originated as, as scrapie, you know, in sheep. And that's one of the TSEs we haven't gotten to yet, but that's one that's been known longer than any. Uh, Scrapie and sheep was first documented in the literature in 1734. So it's been around for a very long time. And they probably could only tell the the behavior of the dying animal, right? At that point in time, yeah. yeah. And... uh, Scrapie has been been a problem for you know for you know many years, decades to centuries, uh, but it looks like scrapie may have crossed over into BSE, and, and certainly it's it's one plausible explanation for for where chronic wasting disease came from. 
You know, CWD first described back in 1967 in a in a research facility out in the state of Colorado. Doesn't mean it started there, yeah. but it was first described there. And, and when we say CWD, we're talking about ungulate, or not. So, so we're talking about just members of the deer family carry CWD. As far as we know, CWD is the TSE of members of the cervid or the deer family. And, so and name which which species. It's been found in. Okay. It has been uh, detected in free-ranging and captive whitetail, mule deer, elk, a handful of cases in moose, and in reindeer as well. Uh, Most recently, uh, picked up in reindeer, three reindeer, and a couple moose in Norway. You know, the first cases um, outside of North America, other than a game farm situation in South Korea. So if we talk about distribution of CWD in those species, and it's been picked up in, in 24 states in free-ranging and or captive situations in North America, uh, two provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan in Canada, also picked up and described in South Korea. Um, and in South, in Korea, South Korea, didn't they have some American deer? Elk, actually. American elk? Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting case because the uh, the original animals that, that died were elk that still had Canadian ear tags in them. Hmm. And so it's highly unlikely that those elk, um, you know, swam the big pond from <laughs> North America over to South Korea. So I think we can, we can pretty clearly identify how, you know, how those animals and how diseased moved. Um now, there have been additional outbreaks in South Korea, so it looks like their efforts to, you know, stamp out or keep the disease under control have, have had some success, but they haven't been completely successful in that they keep, they've had a few additional outbreaks. But how about the ones in Norway? Norway's a real interesting situation, and I don't, I don't know that we'll ever truly know how, um, how CWD got there. It was picked up... Um, you know, a year ago, in um, initially in a reindeer, and then after they did they they did some additional surveillance, outbreak surveillance, and they found it in two more reindeer. They also found it in two moose. Okay, uh, and it's kind of it's, it's interesting. If did, you're, the, did the moose live near the reindeer? They were not. The moose were quite a distance away. And as you're, you're full aware, and, and you know, moose are relatively solitary animals. They don't hang out in big herds. And so the cases we've seen in moose and even in North America have been, you know, just one here, one there. I think it's, you know, less than 10 total cases in all of North America in free-ranging moose. So they don't seem to be a real big player. They're certainly susceptible, um, you know, to CWD, but they don't seem to be a real big player in movement of disease. Uh, now with the reindeer... Again, as you're aware, reindeer are, you know, they hang together in very large herds. So the science was completed a few years ago that strongly suggested reindeer were susceptible to CWD, but we have not seen an outbreak in North America. So this instance in Norway now, pick it up in three reindeer, is the first instance in free-ranging herds. Well, the Norwegians are very, very concerned about this. And, uh, and so they are, uh, they're kind of taking the gloves off with regard to management, something that we have not really been effective at dealing with disease in free-ranging populations in North America. They're going to take the gloves off over there. And so the reindeer maintain 
relatively static herd structures hanging together in a, in a known geographic area. And so the plan is to, um, to eliminate, eradicate one whole herd unit of about 2,000 reindeer over a fairly large geographic area. Now, it'll be a little bit easier than, uh, than trying to get rid of all the whitetail in a region because they are, they, you know, they hang together. They're stuck together so, and, they're, and they're in more open country. A more open country. Right. So it will, they will be able to pull it off. But hats off to the Norwegian government and their, you know, their natural resources and agriculture folks. They look at this as a very serious issue. They have observed what has been going on in North America with CWD over the last few decades, and they concluded, A, they don't want it. B, when you own, when you, so far, it seems like it, that disease, however it got there, is a fairly recent phenomenon. And so with CWD, I would argue that you probably get one chance at effective management of CWD in a free-ranging population. It has to be early. And so they they believe, based on the data they have, that CWD has not been there long. They don't want it, so they're going to take the gloves off. They're going to eliminate this herd unit, and they're going to keep all other animals out of the geographic area where this herd herd, has lived for a minimum of five years. We talked about that that um, characteristic of the disease-associated prion protein um, not being able to be degraded in the environment. It looks like it persists in the environment for years, potentially decades, and can remain viable and bioavailable. So healthy, naive, susceptible animals can pick up that disease-associated prion protein from contaminated environment. If you catch disease early enough, early enough in the epidemic, there's probably not much of that contamination relative to, you know, later on. So if you're going to be successful with managing this disease, you have to catch it early and you probably have to take the gloves off the way the Norwegians are doing. Now, you may recall back to, you know, Wisconsin back Mm -hmm. in 2002. Well, before you do that, though, hit me with Colorado. So what happened in Colorado? All right, so... That was where they identified it in the U.S.? Yeah, well, CWD was first described in this research facility in Colorado back in 1967. And that was captive deer? They were research animals. Okay, yeah. They were were captive animals. They were research animals maintained by by the state of Colorado. Okay. Now... Part of the, the history of CWD is that there may have been disease research going on with scrapie in that vicinity or the same area or you know, maybe even the same facility. So one of the, the possible mechanisms for where CWD came from, and it's not the only one, is that what we're looking at is scrapie in deer. CWD and scrapie have some really unique characteristics. All the rest of the TSEs, be it um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, be it BSE in cattle, they don't move on their own. We had to feed cow to cow in order to create an epidemic with BSE. With Kuru, people had to consume people, okay, in order for disease to move. Scraping and CWD are unique amongst the TSEs in that they are contagious. They are freely, laterally transmissible. So deer A 
or elk A can give CWD to another animal on its own. There doesn't need to be any human intervention. Scrapie is the same way. It moves sheep to sheep to sheep. These animals are shedding infectious agent through bodily fluids, through saliva, through urine, through feces. And that creates a, a, a contagious mechanism if that saliva is taken up by another animal, a healthy, naive, susceptible animal, it can lead to disease transmission. So we go back to the Colorado thing. One of the possibilities might be that CWD originated and trans- transferred across the species barrier from scrapie. You look at the timeline. I mentioned that, that scrapie was first described in 1734 on the other side of the pond. The first time scrapie was described in North America was in 1948, and it was traced back to a flock of sheep that had been moved across the pond. So human intervention. But over the course of the next 20 years, scrapie had proliferated and been moved, um, largely by humans moving sheep around. Scrapie had moved... um, across a lot of North America as well. So the time and the place, if we think Scrapie came to North America around 1948, and the first time CWD was described was about 20 years later out yeah. in Colorado, that's what we would, we would refer to as a, as, a, as a parsimonious solution for where CWD came from. We can't prove it, though. Yeah. There are other possibilities. Because some people are kind of... And- I, I I don't fully understand why, but there's like um there's some resistance to that I gather because if you start reading on the web, you'll find people making like very spirited arguments that that uh it's always been here. I read that. Do you too. even want to speak? Do you even care to speak to that? Well, yeah, I would. I can take take a stab at that. Okay, so. CWD in these places where it has been established the longest, places in Colorado, uh, place in Wyoming, in the South Converse unit, in, uh, in Converse County, Wyoming. I think we're not far behind in, in Iowa County, uh, not far from here, Iowa County, Wisconsin. Places where CWD has been established for a while, decades we see two phenomena. Number one, we see geographic spread. So deer to deer to deer. You know, it starts spreading from there. Number two, we see increases in prevalence or the proportion of animals that are afflicted by CWD. In some of these places, um, in uh, Wyoming, South Converse County, in a uh, few areas in Colorado, uh, just south of here in Iowa County, Prevalence has reached up into the area in adult males. So we're talking two and a half and older aged animals, deer. Prevalence in the 40 to 50% range. So you think about that. So you go out hunting and you're, you're lucky enough to be able to tag a, you know, in a three and a half year old buck. Take a coin out of your pocket, flip it up in the air, and those are the odds that that deer has CWD. So when prevalence gets to that level, we start to, you know, I mean, the the science, the numbers suggest that we're going to start seeing population level impacts, that a population cannot sustain that level of disease. So because it's I see this all the time because it's always fatal. It is. It's a fatal disease. 
Now, you'll get arguments, and, and somebody right now, when they're listening to this, is going to say, oh, he's full of crap. It's not always fatal. And the argument that I typically hear goes along something like this, that so a deer had CWD and a hunter shot that deer. That deer didn't die of CWD. Yeah. Died of <laughs> paracute lead poisoning. Um, but uh, it isn't, if, if a disease is allowed to progress, it is fatal. You think about it, and what I describe like barring is, that some other thing happens. Barring some other thing happening. Um, that disease is always going to be fatal. Once you start to see that, that neurological degeneration in the brain, it's progressive. There's no way to stop that domino effect of the disease-associated prions proliferating through the brain, resulting in neuronal death. There's no stopping that. There's no reversing the damage. And how long could it take? But I guess it's hard to answer because you don't know what the beginning is. In, um, like, if you say, like, I want to get back to where I'm getting ideas stacked on top of each other here, but we'll just run with this for a minute. When you hear people say it's always fatal. So, you know, a deer that gets to be like a, a, a buck, let's say, that gets to be five years old, he's already super old anyways. Okay. So if it's always fatal, like how do you, how do you measure that? Cause you don't know when they got it in the first place. So I was going to ask how long it takes to kill a deer, okay. but you probably can't say like today, this deer got CWD. Let's watch and see when he dies. Right. We will never be able to truly identify the infectious moment, but we can track when mortality occurs and we can look at, at um, sex and age ratios of animals that are harvested. And then we know uh, how many of them, those that are sampled, we know whether they were CWD positive, CWD negative. So we can do a little back calculation. Okay. We do know from, um, based on studies in, in pen, pen situations, that if you take your garden variety, you know, deer, uh, the incubation period for CWD is probably between 18 and 24 months. So you want to think it's maybe a two-year disease. That animal looks perfectly healthy um, all the way through that incubation period up until maybe six, eight weeks before the end and then they start really looking ragged and and you think about the accumulation of that disease associated prionic protein in the brain at first it's probably having no effect on the animal at all then during the course of disease it looks like an exponential curve going up and towards the end you see that vast proliferation of, of prion protein resulting in neuronal death. That animal cannot survive. Okay. So it's impossible. So on, on average, it's probably about a two-year disease. Gotcha. But I want to go back, if we can, to we talked about CWD. Has it always been there? Yeah, because I, I want to lay out people like why I'm asking about that is when and and. Doug, you follow this a lot, so you can speak up if, if this doesn't jive with so your, your understanding of Hunter's understanding of this. When, people, when you get CWD in a herd of deer, herd of elk, um, there's a lot of talk all of a sudden about trying to go in and, and radically cull the herd to lower numbers or to do eradications in certain areas to try to contain the disease or to knock the numbers back so hard that it won't effectively pass from animal to animal. And this pisses a lot of guys off because, as you know, anyone who likes to hunt knows, you want as many animals around as possible. And so when people start hearing this chatter, they get uneasy feeling about it. They don't like where this is going. And I feel that it's a guy that feels that way 
who's likely to be the same guy who says, ah, it's always been here. Is that fair, Doug? I don't. I, You've I, logged more hours thinking about this than I have. Boy, I sure have. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it more. I, if I'm not, right up there with you. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm not trying to do the science. I'm just trying to do the psychology of like the kind of guy who's who likes the idea that it's always been here. Well, I think that they're they're more likely to say, "Well, we can't do anything about it anyway." Yeah. That ends up being the attitude that I get as much as anything. Well, you know, it's too late. We're not going to eradicate all the, like when they, they had the eradication effort, uh, or that was, you know, we had the eradication zone. It really upset people because, well, how are we going to be able to do that? We're going to kill all the deer. Dude, it became a national news story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was not supported socially, was not supported It was not support. Yeah. Yeah. And so same thing happened in Alberta. Um, when CWD, it looked like, was was starting to march from Saskatchewan towards Alberta, um, Alberta wanted to uh, wanted to stop it, and they were doing everything they can could at that point in time. So they were culling large numbers of animals, um, trying to keep CWD, you know, on the Saskatchewan side or drive it back to the Saskatchewan side. They even um, uh, went to a point where they used kind of an unconventional. Uh, method to kill deer. They were doing it from an aerial platform, and it wasn't a tree stand. It was a helicopter. Yeah. And so if you want to be effective at dropping, at knocking down deer numbers, same as, you know, if you were trying to, you know, kill feral hogs or something like that, do it from a helicopter. You can you can really take down a lot of deer in the course of a day or a week. Well, that was, uh, it looked like they were being quite effective. They were being very effective at dropping deer numbers, and it looked like they had a chance. Well, that that technique was not supported. Uh, the outfitters and the hunters in that area were offended um, that the the ministry in Alberta was taking that many deer for something that they didn't consider to be that big of a problem to start with. And so that social pressure led to political pressure, led to uh, the program being basically defunded. Okay. And so Alberta stopped doing that aggressive management of CWD. And if you take a look at the at the at the map that, you know, I put together of the of the, you know, known distribution of CWD or you look at the Alberta Ministry um, stuff, you'll see CWD marching westward. And it's now established and it's going to be very challenging to to do anything with. There's another thing I I've heard uh, from hunters and that is, well, they've had it out in Colorado this whole time and it's stabilized. I have no. I, yeah, I can, stabilization of the population. Yeah, or whatever. I've it's, heard that. Sure, it's it's no big deal. In other words, it hasn't hurt the deer population. That's what I hear on a regular basis, um, and that comes back to that that situation. You know, trying to identify has it always been here? In places where disease has been the longest, we have now documented population level impacts in localized geographic areas where CWD is clearly impacting uh, numerically the deer herd. We've seen cases now uh, documented, peer-reviewed literature, peer-reviewed science in mule deer in Colorado. We've seen um, white-tailed deer in, uh, in an area in the South Converse County in Wyoming and documented in North American elk in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. So if this disease had been here always, 
We know that CWD does two things really well. It spreads geographically and it grows in prevalence. When the prevalence gets high enough, there's every likelihood that it will impact populations. Is there any evidence anywhere that this has occurred historically? There's none. There is no evidence that a TSC has been out there and has caused local or regional population declines historically. And the interesting thing about CWD... But there'd only be... I mean, we'd only have, if we're lucky, you know, what, what we got 100 years to draw on. I mean, that stuff could have been going on. You know, you have no idea. But over the last... It say say like over the last hundred years we might have been able to to measure something like that or realize something that was occurring. Okay, but what will stop CWD? To date, we know of no biological oh, feature yeah, gotcha. which will stop it. So if it had been there two hundred, three hundred, five hundred years ago, there wouldn't be one little pocket. Yeah. Yeah, why you know we've see yeah we've seen small pockets of disease grow into larger pockets of disease, and none of those pockets has vanished. None, of, it's never like any area that's had it has never gotten rid of it. CWD, as far as I'm aware, has not gone away anywhere other than potentially in a captive facility where we depopulate that yeah, facility. So there's no you know their populations don't seem to adapt. Um, there does not seem to be any strong genetic selection for resistance to disease. Now, there are genotypes in each of the three main species, white-tailed deer, mule deer, and elk, that seem to have some level of quote-unquote resistance. Now, that resistance, they seem a little less likely to get CWD, but they can get CWD. And what it does is manifest through a longer incubation period. So when I said your garden variety deer, it's about a two-year disease. In these, in these resistant genotypes, it seems like it's maybe a five-year disease. So that gives them enough time to, that gives many of them enough time to have the life they would have had. To, and, and to, to, repro- and to and have reproduce. the life they would have had, reproduce, and then die from the shit that kills deer without them ever knowing that they had it. Like, if you told me I had a disease that's going to be fatal in 100 years, I'd be like, that's, that's cool. Like, <laughs> okay. Get in line, right? There's plenty of stuff that's going to kill me between now and then. Okay, but let's think about if that disease you have, if they, over the course of that 100 years, 80 years of that, you're able to actively give that disease to other people. Uh, yeah. And so that's kind of the difference. So yeah, that deer, so that deer, guy's got an answer for everything. <laughs> the, the garden variety garden deer with CWD, where I said that clinical, you know, it's 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 inapparent in the animal, at least to us. Yeah. For maybe Spreading twenty twenty two months, and then it's sick, and it's and it dies. That animal is shedding infectious agent, so it's infectious. It's yeah, capable yeah. of transmitting disease probably as early as three months after it gets disease. Really? So for the majority of the time frame that animal has CWD, it's able to give that disease to others and to shed infectious agent out into the environment where it may persist for years, potentially up to decades. Now that, that resistant genotype... He's got a five-year version of CWD instead of a two-year. So that deer might be shedding infectious agent for maybe four years or even longer before it gets sick and dies. So although it's good for him, it's bad for everybody else. It's good for him or her, yeah. and it might be good for their progeny 
if they you know if that if that trait breeds true it might be good for their progeny but it could be bad for everybody else and we call that a typhoid mary syndrome yeah okay it's not dying from it but it's spreading it's two things that are probably going to die from it quicker than he would right now there's another interesting thing these genotypes that are supposedly resistant to cwd are incredibly rare out in a, in a wild population, they might be 5% of the animals or even less, okay? So if this was a desirable trait, genotypic trait, one would expect that at a minimum, it'd be in a larger proportion. If it of had deer. always been around. If it had, yeah, if that, if that gene had had an opportunity to proliferate in response to disease, they ought to be the dominant mm-hmm. genotypes out there. But they're not. They're very, very rare. So it's interesting because, uh, you know, some folks in the captive servant industry have proposed, hey, why don't we start breeding these resistant genotypes and, and infiltrate the populations with them? So we'll replace the, the, the susceptible animals with the resistant animals and everything will be just hunky-dory, right? So the observations of these animals, well, number one, if, if, if that genotype is really rare, it suggests that that animal may not be fit may not be a genetically fit animal in other characteristics. Mm. That, gene, that CWD resistance may be tied to other characteristics that, are, that may be deleterious to animals. Yeah. Okay? There's got to be an explanation for why that genotype is really rare. And researchers in Colorado were able to, to actually breed up some of the, the mule deer with the resistant genotypes. And their conclusions were that while these deer uh, looked like mule deer acted largely like mule deer they're highly technically they weren't quite right these animals just didn't behave the way that their their wild type brethren are so now let's put that animal in a wild system where you've got things like wolves you've got giant antlers (laughs) (laughs) where where put put that animal who is just not quite right behaviorally into a system with predators over historical time, and maybe there you can see why that animal was selected against. That that TSE resistance may be tied to other phenotypic characteristics which are less than desirable for an animal who has to be, you know, has to be a hundred percent of or a hundred and ten percent of a deer in order to survive. Yeah. So it all, you know, kind of boiled together that that resistance, quote unquote resistance. Um, it might not be the the panacea that we're that we're hoping for, the cure all for CWD. Yeah. Well, there won't be a cure all. We haven't found one yet. But um, what would it even look like? Well, researchers are working on vaccines. Okay. Uh, well, vaccine yeah, but I mean, you can, but I, I, you're going to go vaccinate all the deer. And then keep doing it. Well, that's that's one thought. Now, vaccine um, people have worked on vaccines. Are there communicable for, vaccines? Pardon me. Has there ever been a communicable vaccine? A communicable? Oh, where you would put it in, put it in one like animal. You vaccinate me and the same way to do the disease. Catch or? the vaccination just by letting me sleep on his couch. That's an interesting theory. That's an interesting theory. I'm not aware of any that has been effective that way. That's an idea. Yeah. There you go. I need to patent that idea. You might be on it. You might be on it. Um, there have been a number of vaccine candidates 
uh, for TSEs in general. It would be great to be able to vaccinate cattle, sheep, oh, humans yeah, yeah. for TSEs. You could, you could do all that easily. It, we have not. Uh, scientists have not say, been able to administrate. I'm saying. If, if you had the yeah. miracle of the vaccine, administering it to cattle, administering it to sheep, administering it to humans, right. that's plausible. It's plausible. And, and certainly it's not out of question that it could be done with free-ranging animals as well. Some vaccines can be built into oral-based formulations where we could put it into something that deer would eat, spread it. You know, probably from helicopters or or yeah, you know airplanes you. across the landscape, and vaccinate animals uh, to prevent them from getting CWD. But yes, you'd have to do it over a vast geographic area, and you'd have to do it for a really long time, decades. And you have to but, come up with that vaccine first, right? You got to come up with a vaccine. But there are instances where, with other diseases, where that's been effective. Um, with rabies, uh, with raccoon rabies, there's an oral bait. Um, that has been uh, created. Looks like little dog biscuits. Okay. Um, raccoon rabies historically was isolated to the southeastern states, and it was moved up in a little bit further north along the eastern seaboard, um, either by um, by conservationists themselves or by state agencies who were relocating uh, raccoons to um, supplant you know populations that had been reduced by overharvest. Inadvertently, is that something that's happened? Absolutely, people have had to people have had to do raccoon reintroductions. Yeah, historically, I mean, game agencies have have restored darn near everything over time. Yeah, I just thought raccoons were an exception there, just because they've enjoyed a general like in the time that we've been keeping track of such things, they've enjoyed a general northward and westward spread. Humans have helped a little bit. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so, sure. I'm sure. Same so, way, like, why are there fox squirrels in Missoula, yeah. Montana? <laughs> and, and so, inadvertently, raccoon rabies was moved from the farther in the southeast up into up into the Virginias. And so, as a good pathogen does, it will try and take advantage of a naive, susceptible host population. And raccoon rabies has moved right straight up the eastern seaboard, where now, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to find cases in places like Central Park in New York. Okay. Okay. And the, and the fear with that is... He, the, the, it's, a, it's a zoonosis. Or that a people disease give it to a human. That a disease that transmits between animals and humans and sometimes back. By definition, that's what a zoonosis is. Okay. And it's a fa- and rabies is a fatal disease in humans. To the raccoon, is it? To the raccoon, to okay. other all mammalian hosts. So now raccoon rabies seems to it wants to move westward as well. And so there is a very massive program that's been ongoing for quite some time where every year these vaccine-laden baits are dropped from aircraft across a swath all the way from, I believe it's along Lake Erie, down along the Appalachians, down to the southern states. This is going on right now. It goes on every year. And so these re- these baits are dropped you, across you, you the landscape. Did you catch one of this, Doug? <laughs> this is news to me. I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, pre- it's neat stuff, oh, but it works. So you're cool. trying to create a vaccinated path where the raccoons and other animals have been vaccinated against rabies. So even if they are exposed to the rabies virus, they are not no longer susceptible to it. You know about this, Yanni? No. I don't think so, ra- Dude, are you serious? Rack- yeah, that's fascinating, Absol- huh? Absolutely. And yeah. it's and it's one of those instances. So really? I, like I, you come back and say, is it 
possible that CWD could yeah. be managed sometime in the future by no, vaccine-laden baits. You're, opening my, you're making me feel it's, opt- it's I, a even possibility. though the vaccine doesn't exist and it might be decades. impossible or decades or whatever, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it on the idea that you could, in fact, maybe. So then it'd be expensive. So then as a hunter in an area where, as we were talking earlier, that it's moving up through, I'm feeling, and a landowner, and feeling, uh, I feel like an obligation to do what I can, and and if I can, spread the word of, let's at least, we're not, we're not going to get rid of it. How the hunter always says, oh, we're not going to get rid of it if they've had it, it's stabilized, it's all that. I mean, I feel like it's our obligation to slow it down, so to give that, to buy that time. Yeah, well, that's that's a great point. In the okay, <laughs> sorry. Let me give you another quick example of a vaccine that that works. Okay, this one is a, is pretty interesting. This is one that's been developed at the National Wildlife Health Center. So it was thought um, that black-footed ferrets were. Um, extinct until they in turned North up in Matitsi, Wyoming. They popped up in Matitsi, Wyoming. A guy's dog mm-hmm. carried one up to the door. Yep, basically. Turns out they're not extinct. They're not extinct. <laughs> so they brought that population into captivity and bred it up. Okay, and then they put these animals back out on the landscape. And now, if you are a black-footed ferret, you pretty much eat one thing: prairie dogs. Prairie dogs. That's what you eat. All right. And so if we put black-footed ferrets back out on the landscape and 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 fish and wildlife service and the state natural resource agencies have done just that along some of the tribes as well now what happens if plague comes into that population and wipes out a hundred percent of the prairie dog colony where you live well either a you're going to starve to death or b you're going to die of plague yourself right Mm mm-hmm Okay, so this is a limiting factor when we talk about the reintroducing the most endangered mammal in North America, putting it back on the landscape. If your food source dies of plague, you die too. Okay, <laughs> so researchers at the National Wildlife Health Center, in conjunction with lots of other places, over the course of about a decade, developed a vaccine which works. It works in both prairie dogs and it works in black-footed ferrets. I know a lot of ranchers who are going to be disappointed to hear about that. Yeah, they could be. <laughs> but if we're talking about endangered species yeah, reintroduction, oh, I think there's I'm, a place I'm delighted. For it. I, was, I, was more place ma- for it. I was more making a joke about a yep. certain mentality. Oh, yeah. there, there is that mentality. So anyway, now the researchers, they were able to uh, give an intramuscular injection of the vaccine into, into the, uh, the ferrets and okay. protect them. But now how do you go out and you capture all the prairie dogs and give them each a shot? It's analogous to what you're saying with deer with CWD. It just can't be done logistically. So the researchers were able to create an oral bait. And actually they tried different flavors to find out which uh, the prairie dogs preferred. It turns out, guess what? They like peanut butter. Hey. So they created <laughs> little baits, vaccine-laden baits, uh, maybe a centimeter on the on, on edge, uh, cubic little baits. And so it turns out we can put these out on the landscape in prairie dog towns. The prairie dogs consume them. Yep. And they vaccinate themselves, thereby, you know, at the population level, making them 
uh, no longer susceptible to play. And those efforts are are probably focused in areas where you're trying to recover. Where you're trying to restore the the black-footed ferrets. You know, a little tidbit for people, listeners. Um, the The most universal attractant, I think it doesn't matter what you're trying to catch. Peanut butter. Mo- <laughs> peanut butter and molasses mixed together. Catch me on that stuff. I, think it, I, I really think it's the most, I think beaver caster is regarded as like a, a seemingly almost universal attractant to anything that likes to eat meat and uh, to carnivores, beaver caster. And to herbivores, peanut butter and molasses mixed together is like a universal attractant. Absolutely. I did a lot of small mammal uh, trapping you know, many, many years ago, and you put peanut butter inside of a little, you know, Sherman live trap, and you end up with a mouse or a vole in there that's, they roll around in the peanut butter, and then you got to deal with this grease-covered animal. (laughs) You mix the peanut butter with rolled oats. So that's the that's go. the component that you didn't have because it gives them some yeah. glasses and 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 oatmeal. Peanut butter's got staying power, man. <laughs> and the rolled oats, yeah, it probably gives them something to actually it, they can carry it off too, you know. Yeah, well, and and it it, it absorbs some of the grease in the in the peanut yeah. butter. But anyway, come back to that that prairie dog and, and black footed ferret. So there are very few success stories when dealing with wildlife disease in general. You know, if wildlife disease becomes established in a free ranging population. It's pretty tough. Success stories are limited. But it's really interesting. Through the advent and the development of this vaccine, this oral vaccinated you know, bait, being able to put that out there on the landscape, it's likely that we will be able to remove or largely remove plague as an issue with reintroduction and restoration of the most endangered mammal in North America. So it's a success story. And it's one that, oh, that's great. It's rare. And that's an it's one gets, we're really that's proud an animal of. That gets no attention. Right. So I heard two different things. One was... A gobble. <laughs> long story. Uh, no, one was that with the raccoons, essentially there was a band that was established to stop the disease from going further... And I think how that could apply to CWD if and when a vaccine is developed. So you can do that ban. Like a containment ban. A containment ban. And then this, with the black-footed ferret, is stopping it in a particular or, – or re, uh, yeah, stopping it in a particular area. So those are really two success stories, but they're two very different ones that very, are – Very, very different. And, and you come back to your point, does it make sense to try and minimize – the impact in the geographic stretch where CWD is. And I think you, you, you hit the nail on No, I got on one last head. thing before that. I, I want to go into that and, and end He's with that. No, I want to, I want I to know, move into you. that full on, yep. total move into it. Yep. But first. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos these things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom aunt grandma whoever and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to okay it's easy to upload and share photos via the aura app and if you're giving an aura as a gift you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of oprah's favorite things aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages You can share photos to the frame 
instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in, day out. Their fly rods are named after Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks fishing access sites, which is such a cool idea. And each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Montana Casting Company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance, durability, and legacy quality craftsmanship. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. This is, this is going to be impossible to answer. Um, no, I, I, you can answer the first part. I'll give you an easy to answer one. Do we know of a case where a dude has caught CWD from eating deer? Okay, so you want to talk about human risk. I think it's appropriate. It's a it's a topic that everybody's interested in. I think it all. Okay. I think most people. That's kind of where they end okay. up when they're thinking about this. Oh, I'm happy to discuss this. So to date, there is no recognized instance where a human has contracted a TSE associated with consumption of of CWD afflicted deer. Okay. okay? So from an epidemiological standpoint, it does not look like it has happened okay now a tremendous amount of of scientific research has been done many different studies many different ways and 
the bottom line, if I had to boil down all of that research, suggests that the chances of transmission of CWD crossing the species barrier into humans is small. It's remote, but it is not zero. It was very remote in the case of BSE crossing over into humans. And to date, we now know of over 200 fatal cases of variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease in humans associated with consumption of BSE-contaminated beef. Now, they entered, they put a lot of beef in that system. Yeah, million, you're saying millions of animals? But probably about uh, at least three-quarters of a million animals entered into the human food chain, okay. resulting in approximately 200 cases known to date. So the conversion rate was very, very small. Now, in for... If we want to kind of you know generalize, if we said in in experiments in test tube type environments, we can see CWD causing a, a conversion of human normal prion protein to the disease associated form at about the same rate as BSE does. I mean, it's reasonable to anticipate that. It's not unreasonable to think that it could happen. Yeah said the risk is very low. We can't quantify that risk exactly, precisely. The risk is low, but it's not zero. Same thing can be said with the chances for transmission into livestock. Okay, Deer are out there commingling with cattle today. And if deer have CWD... They're happening. That's happening. Not far from here. A hundred yards from here. <laughs> not, not, it's not unfeasible. Oh, absolutely. Right. So yeah. there's interaction. Plus, the, the deer are shedding infectious agent into the environment, and the cattle are, are um, exposed to that. Just like when humans are consuming venison, mm -hmm. if it's a CWD-positive deer, those humans are exposed to the infectious agent. Now, exposure is not the same as transmission. Like I said, the chances are low, they are not zero. But now let's add to that equation just a little bit. In the state of Wisconsin alone, last year there were 400, about 450 positives detected. Probably the majority of them were consumed by the hunter that killed them. Okay, it seems that, you know, at least at least some of them. That's positives detected. Positives detected. Did now, you, so did you guys follow up with those hunters? Because I heard from a guy today who his family killed five, four were positive, and he was sketching out for me. Um, he's eating his, his girlfriend's pissed at him, she won't eat it. They had a friend that wanted a deer, he wound up declining the deer. This is right here in, in southwest Wisconsin. So right. do, you, do you guys follow up to be like, so what happened to the deer? The DNR, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, does follow up, and uh, with every positive test, they provide information back to the hunter and provide them an option. They give them information and an option on what they want to do. And they obviously allow them to opt out of the wanton waste laws, right? Certainly, like, certainly. They, they, would, they would come pick it up, or at least at one point yeah. they would actually come pick it up. You're not going to get in trouble for up. discarding the nope, edible portions. Nope, CWD positive material, nobody's going to go after you for that. But I would offer up that at least, you know, probably the majority of individuals now, and I, I'm not, I don't have their data, uh, but I think the majority of individuals now uh, would say, okay, thanks, but we, we've opted to consume it. Now, which, Dude, I just don't know. Okay. I don't know. But now, let's think about it. The amount of surveillance that we do 
is much less than it used to be. Totally uh, voluntary. First, first few years in the southern part of, the, of Wisconsin, you know, the DNR was testing 20,000 deer. This last year tested, you know, around 7,000. What are they losing interest? Uh, they really don't have the funding to do this to do the surveillance political will yeah so it's not that hard to do some back of the envelope calculations if we know what prevalence generally looks like if we know what what prevalence generally looks like in a county we know what harvest looks like in a county so we can f- kind of figure out crude, back of the envelope, and, and identify maybe how many CWD-positive deer were killed what do you think? by hunters. I can come up pretty easily with you know a couple thousand CWD-positive animals killed in the state of Wisconsin every year. Now, if only 400 of them were tested positive, that means that for every test-positive animal, there were probably three or ish, three-ish, that uh, we're not tested at all. So all of those, you would think, are going home, being consumed by the hunters and their families. Mm-hmm. So when I talked about the risk, so the, the amount of exposure doesn't change the risk to any one of those people. But if we think about if you had a scientific experiment or maybe even not a scientific experiment, maybe you buy lottery tickets, things yeah. like that, the odds that any one of us Buying, you know, that winning, or in this case, that losing lottery ticket, is extremely remote. But if you keep running that experiment enough times, you might expect an alternate outcome at the end of the day. Somebody wins the lottery. In the case of BSE, at least 200 people got the bad lottery ticket where they developed disease from consuming BSE positive positive animals. So we keep challenging this system. You know, the odds are low from any for any one individual. Incredibly low. There's lots of things we do on a day-to-day basis which are much more risky than probably than consuming CWD positive venison. But we going along under the assumption that it cannot happen would be incorrect. From a scientific standpoint. That, that's what I find myself ex- explaining when people ask me about it, is I'm like, no known... No known no, no, no transmission, but I'm like, so take whatever solace you, like, you want from that, but it's just it's a lot of unknown, man. So there's a, a few things we can look to. One is a place called the, the World Health Organization, WHO. Their recommendations are pretty firm that... Animal material known to be positive for a CW or for any TSE should not be consumed by any other man animal, including humans. That's what WHO says. World Health Organization says keep it out of the food chain. What does the Centers for Disease Control say? The Centers for Disease Control is very, very similar. They have a presence on their website, you know, dealing with chronic wasting disease. Their recommendations are things like, you know, if you hunt in an area where CWD is known to exist, you should consider getting your deer tested. And if you follow that, if you get your deer tested and it comes back positive, the recommendation is that you not consume that material. So here you have, you know, both the World Health Organization and our National Centers for Disease Control making pretty solid recommendations saying, you know, uh, you, you probably shouldn't eat that stuff. So that's from, that's from health professionals. Mm-hmm. 
um, the Wisconsin uh, Department of Health uh, has a little corner in the uh, in the rules digest. Every state has their hunting rules digest or you know hunting regulations digest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little presence from the from uh, Department of Health in there, and they recommend that you should have your deer tested, and if it comes back positive, that you not consume it. Yeah, but man, I mean, the implications of it though is as you get into these areas, like this guy I heard from, that on their family property, four of five, is that what I said earlier? Four yeah. out of the five deer they killed on their property had it. If you're going to follow those recommendations, at a point soon, in a lot of areas around the country, it won't warrant the chase. There will be no. There would be no reason to hunt deer. You're going to shoot five deer to get one that you can consume if you're doing the testing. If you're following the guidelines. Now, I've told this story before, but I had mine tested. From here. From here. Yeah, we had them all tested, yeah. And took them home. Now, initially, I was like, I'm not even going to get it tested because I don't want to, right? I'd rather just live in peace. The, but the, the landowner insisted. Yeah, I'd rather. No, come on. I'd rather, <laughs> live, I'd rather live in ignorance, right? Just in the peace, peaceful ignorance. But then I got to thinking to myself, if my wife gets wind of the fact that there's a test one could get for free Mm -hmm. on a deer and didn't do it and opted to instead take said deer home and feed them to thy children. Yeah. And then later you had to say like, oh yeah, I could have had a test done, but didn't instead just fed it to the kids. You know, you could picture all, all that's going so what I did then was just like took the deer home, kept it in my freezer, awaiting my results, got my results, proceeded to eat the deer. Which were very quick, by the way. Here in Wisconsin, There's, it's less than yeah, a couple of weeks. Really but what it, but yeah, so that, absolutely. I don't almost go so far as to say you're stupid to not do that. Now, the rub is, if it had come back positive, mm-hmm. would I really have gone and taken those two deer and thrown them in the garbage? That is painful. And that is a, you know, a very personal decision. It's based on what you know and your individual tolerance for risk. Yeah. And that's what that's Mine's what I high. like to that's what I like to talk to people about is the chances are low. They're not zero. Is this a risk that you're willing to endure for yourself, for your family? For your children. Are you comfortable saying what you would do personally? Or I don't that... think it's really germane. Because I, I think my role is to provide the information. I can picture it. I respect that, and that, that's, I, that's noble. I've studied this stuff for a long time. Um, you know, to date, and I get my deer tested too. Because okay. I hunt where CWD is. It's not as thick. It's not as prevalent where I hunt yet as it is here or just a hair south of here. And I haven't hit a positive yet. Yeah. Let's put it that way. But you but you do you do think obviously testing's a good idea. If nothing else, I mean it's provi- it provides data to people. It provides data back to per scientists to try and track what's going on with this disease. So right. you you're kind so of boiling in. Oh, oh in, sorry, go ahead. No, you're boiling into that kind of that big question and, and it's why should people care about C W D. Okay? Why care? Because it's been around a long time. Uh, even where prevalence is high, there's still deer 
Maybe not as many, you know, maybe in these localized areas, we see population level effects. But, you know, I, I, that's what I typically hear. It's been here a long time. Cows don't get it. People don't get it. And there's plenty of deer to hunt. Why should I care about CWD? Because you, it's a corruption. It's a potential corruption of a pristine food source. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a normal part of the system. But anyway, I, I think we can boil this down. And, and, it, and a paper came out a year ago written by... A uh, couple people that I, I highly respect. John Fisher from the uh, Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study in, in Athens, Georgia. And Mike Miller from the, from the uh, state of Colorado. And Mike has been publishing about CWD for, you know, ever since I think the late 70s or early 1980s. He knows as much about this disease as any other person does. Anyway, these guys wrote a paper. And they get, they've given some presentations to, you know, to state audiences over the course of the last year. And, and they articulate why we, why we should probably care about CWD and boil it down to some very simple things. One, is that chance that CWD could cross over the species barrier and become a human disease issue? So that's a reason, one reason why we should be concerned about CWD, the chance that it could yeah. become a human health issue. Number two is that, you know, we have, as I mentioned, we've now documented in a localized area population impacts coming from CWD. And at this point in time, we don't know. Time will tell whether those population impacts will become more regional, whether they'll spread from the localized area to the regional. So there's that chance that CWD could become a population impacting, population limiting factor. That's another reason we should care. Those are the two big ones that they, that they point out in their paper. But now there's a third one that when these guys are out talking to audiences, and this is one that's come up as well. It's a highly technical term we call, we refer to as the ick factor. You were yeah. talking about it before. The early human dimensions research where they sent surveys out to hunters and their families, they did a lot of that in the state of Wisconsin back in 2002, 2003, 2004. And they reached, you know, they asked hunters, at what point would you have had enough and decide not to go hunting there? And it seems like when you get up in that 40 to 50% prevalence range, we're not too south of here, too far south of here where you kill that three-year-old buck and flip a coin, we're in that range. That at that point, when prevalence gets to that point, that ick factor might change your behavior and either you will decide not to hunt there or perhaps your spouse will decide for you that you're not going to hunt there. So now put yourself in the, in the shoes of a landowner mm -hmm. who's trying to manage deer, keep deer numbers down so he might have some oaks regenerate someday. How do you manage deer without deer hunters? So even when we get CWD prevalence up in that 50% range in adult males, it's probably going to be some time before disease starts limiting deer numbers themselves. So we're going to have that uh, intervening I'll, time frame where deer numbers are going to skyrocket. Yeah, but I'll add to that, like how do you manage deer without deer hunters? How do you manage a host of fish and wildlife species without deer, without revenue generated from license sales? From license sales. So I mean, it's like it's a, it becomes a... Like no hunt. Like when you have a radical decline in hunter participation, it does not bode well for any kind of wildlife that's managed by the state. Right. You run into a so, lot of problems for access, research, the very yeah, the very information we're the, the acquisition of the very information we're talking about right now. Yep. Yeah. So, so 
People ask me, why should I care? And those are the things that I've been keying on for probably you know close to 10 years. So a quick recap would be? The, the potential impact on deer populations themselves, when prevalence gets high enough, number kills one, deer. kills deer, and you start seeing localized or regional population declines due to CWD, due mm. to disease. Nobody okay. wants to see that. Number two, the possibility that CWD could cross over the species barrier and become a human health or maybe even a livestock health issue, okay? And number three is that ick factor, that when prevalence gets high enough, hunters will change their behavior, quit hunting, or go hunting someplace else, and all the repercussions that that has on our ability to manage deer, as you so adeptly pointed out, our ability to manage other things. Because yeah. deer hunting licenses pay for it all. All right, Doug. Now, I know you've been itching. You've been scratching to get I'm fascinated by the whole no, conversation. No, 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 because no. you've been wanting to. Because I know that you want you. You're concerned about controlling the spread. Now I, I'm willing because I I think of that as the the uh, like yeah you probably haven't noticed. But I've, I feel like I've tried to take us from the past into the present, and now we're moving into the future. I, I did notice that. That's, Check that that's out. very good, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Brian's actually answered a lot of what I was, uh, the questions that I had that I wanted to start spurting out right at the beginning. Um, Can I speak for you for a minute? Always. Is that, 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 does that bother you? No, not at all. You worry, uh, Doug Duran worries a lot about CWD because you're on sort of the, you're on like the threshold. Yeah, we're right. As, as Brian said, it's just to the south of us. I'm guessing that we have deer in our immediate area that, that have the disease. Um, and to date, none off this farm. To date, none off this farm. And we've tested every deer for the last two or three years and where i hunt in crawford county um we saw it coming crawford being just west of richland county where we are um from the tree stand i sit in two years ago the first positive in crawford county was killed in a i think it was a four-year-old buck about three miles to the northeast of where i'm sitting in a tree last year another one was picked up in the section just to the southwest of where I'm sitting in that in that in that tree stand, so I'm watching it as as well. Yeah. First, it you know you see it coming, then it's just off to this side. Now it's on the other corner as well, and it doesn't. And, and so you start looking at a mature deer a little differently. Yeah. You can go on to the Wisconsin DNR uh, website and uh, and the CWD section, and of course. As you were saying, the statistics are a little bit different now because testing isn't as uh, widespread. But you can take year to year uh, over the last several years the the, the photographs of, or the 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 research, or the results of Southwest Wisconsin, and it shows every section. And it started in the what they called the hot zone. And if you you kind of flip through, through those very quickly, you just see that boom, it just keeps widening, and it starts out there's oh there's a little pink squares here and then there gets to be more of them and the numbers keep getting bigger and it just keeps you know spreading that way um i was freaked out about enough earlier but now that i've talked with you about it the the part that i didn't that wasn't registering with me was 
Stephen, I've talked a lot about you know management and why why I'm concerned about it. I like hunting deer. I like having enough uh, deer to hunt. I like eating venison. Um, it's there's the economic impact in the area and all these wonderful things that are a part of it. And then <clears throat> I guess I told you before we, we started the podcast that one of our uh, management objectives here is to regenerate red oak uh, up in a chunk of woods that we're cutting my great grandfather's trees, 125 year old trees. And uh, we've put a lot of effort into a shelterwood harvest up there. And now, <clears throat> I, you know, there's been a decline in hunters already. Certainly hasn't been a decline in hunters on this place, but some in the area. But the, then now factor into that ick factor where people, fewer people are, are, are hunting. And, well, the deer are going to start dying off, but not until they chew down every oak I've got up there. And that would, so, I mean, there's just there's a whole other uh, concern that I have, too. Um, I mean, I was, I, you're going to, if it kills all the deer, you have more oaks, and you know what to do with. Yeah. But it's not going to, as Brian was saying, it's not going to, one, it's not going to kill all the deer. Well, that'd be a nice problem to have. <laughs> too many oak trees. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sure would be uh, too many oak trees. would be a nice problem to have. But, um, and so I was feeling like, as I said, I'm on the, the county deer advisory committee. And one of the, the statements that I made during our meetings was, I feel like we have an obligation in Richland County, especially, uh, you know, here a little further north, and I, I talk with folks around here about this, that, you know, we're on the edge of it now, on the edge of the spread. We have an obligation to, I feel we have an ob- obligation, at least, to do what we can to slow the, the spread of it down. And how do you do that? Well, there have been these conflicting, and it was actually something I wanted to, to ask you about. One is population control, but then the other one was demographic control, because the, uh, the younger bucks are the ones who are more apt to, to spread it. Um, or at least that's what I'm reading, like in Samuel's, uh, uh, mm-hmm. research. Um, so I guess I don't have any, I don't have, I'm not leading up to a question so much yeah, as well, I'm just making well, that, a statement. That gives here. me some. Is there reason to believe that lowering a deer population by some factor, 50%, whatever, slows the spread? Or is that just an assumption? We're making some assumptions there. Um, I can try and address that a little bit. So if we have a population that has, say, 10% prevalence, and we may wave a magic wand, and we make half of those deer disappear today, what's the prevalence in the remaining population? 10%. 10%. Right, because we're not selectively taking Taking sick deer. deer. That's why... One of the reasons it's so challenging to try and manage CWD. We don't have good vaccines. We don't have any therapeutics that you could, you know, give a deer a dose of penicillin and it would make CWD go away. And they don't stand out. When you look at a deer standing in the pasture or in the woods, unless it's at that very late state of disease where it's obviously positive, we have no idea whether it's whether it's CWD positive or negative. So when you shoot a deer, you don't know. So that's why this disease is one of the reasons it's so challenging mm-hmm. is because we don't have effective management tools. Okay, so you would say, say there, well, then why lower deer population, right? doesn't make any sense because we're not impacting prevalence or the proportion of animals positive. But I think it's very important to lower, to keep those deer populations low. Number one is for oaks. Well, I'm not sure number one is oaks, but oaks are in the equation. Oaks are definitely I in like the this equation. Guy. He's an oak guy. Um, 
you know, agricultural crop depredation is another. Uh, the number of deer vehicle collisions is another. And mm. disease is another as well. So let's take that population that we waved our magic wand and we made half of them go away. We still have 10% prevalence. But the key to me is we only have half as many positives as we had before we waved our magic wand. With half of those positives, we have less animals actively shedding infectious agent Mm -hmm. out into the environment where it's going to persist for years to decades. We have fewer animals which are able to actively transmit disease to other deer. And the thing you keyed on before was that dispersal. Okay, Mm -hmm. If we have fewer CWD-positive deer out there on the landscape, we have fewer animals that might decide to pick up and move their home 10 or 20 miles down the road, moving disease with them. So that, to me, is the argument why lower deer populations, lowering deer populations is good. If, If Theoretically, if we took deer populations down to some very, very astoundingly low level, we may be able to break or interrupt the disease transmission cycle, and then we would actually reduce prevalence. But that's taking deer down to, you know, scarce. You know, five deer per square mile, not probably not going to do it. Mm-hmm. We'd have to take deer down to where oh, interaction... Less than, less than five oh, per square yeah, mile. Oh, we'd have to take it down to areas where deer would be rare in order to interrupt the transmission cycle. But, like I said... Those very positive benefits of taking deer populations low, lowering the absolute number of CWD positive deer on the landscape has very definite benefits. Um, now when in, in this part of the world, we assume we know as deer biologists and landowners who have deer, um, and hunters who spend a lot of time with deer, we know quite a bit about deer behavior. So who is the most likely candidate to disperse, to take a 10 or 20 mile or even up to a 100 mile hike. Young males. Young males. When, at what time? How old are they? One year old. 12 months. When mama gives them the boot, you know, they've hung around with mom pretty much their first year of life. When that doe gives them a boot before, you know, she has her next set of fawns, um, she'll she'll give those um, those yearlings, 12 months old animals, a boot. Yeah, she'll start kicking the shit yep. out of them, literally. Like, yep. or not the shit and, part, uh, but she'll, like, kick them. Yep, and a, <laughs> and a female fawn or female yearling will likely set up her home range adjacent to where mom is, okay? More often than not, she'll find her place pretty close to mom, keeping that family group together. The young male, on the other hand, he needs to go out and find a place. And so that might be close by. It might be quite a ways away. Yeah, like um, any of these stories you hear where some animal turns up three states over right it's a it's a, it's a young guy it's yeah, a young male it's a young male like Almost where a, you have like where he a likes, mountain lion that comes from south dakota and shows up in in wisconsin yeah with a radio collar yeah or like a the, or yep. elk that turns up in missouri or wolf yep. out of the up that gets shot outside a guy's chicken coop in missouri it's like now, now does can do it too but the when you think of the predominant animal that disperses as that 12 month old male so if that 12-month-old male has CWD and decides to go 10 or 20 miles or 30 miles before it finds its new home, that could be, you know, the animal that moves disease. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think we really didn't quite get into it, but we think about how disease moves, how CWD moves. And we have that clearly, that deer-to-deer, slow diffusion, diffusive-type movement with an odd deer that picks up and goes a long way. 
Uh, case in point, they had a, uh, in the state of Wyoming, they had a mule deer. I think it was a doe that was CWD positive, had a radio collar. She went over a little over 100 miles really? as the crow flies. Wow. Yeah, they wow. lost her and then found her again with, uh, um, with, a, um, with a fixed-wing aircraft with, a, with an antenna on it. Really? And she had moved CWD herself and CWD infectious agent over 100 miles as the crow flies. Now, how wow. far did she actually go? Wander to get there. Okay, yeah. so... That's pretty interesting. So we think of that slow, this diffusive way movement. Topic, but do they have, like, what just... That was her personality type. Just she. There's no explanation for it. No, no explanation I'm aware of. Yeah, you know, why she did that, but she did. And periodically, you know, you'll have animals in. They had a doe here um, in the early years of CWD when they were doing a collar and follower study, capturing the animals, putting telemetry collars on them, and following. They had one that went from outside of Mount Horeb just to outside of Rockford, and then she turned around and came back. Hmm. Apparently, she didn't like Rockford. Hmm. So, but uh, so anyway, that's the, 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 the that first mechanism is that deer to deer to deer. Then the other one, the big one that we had, can have something to do with. We might not be able to do a lot about deer to deer, other than lowering populations trying to kill CWD positive deer. Yeah. But the other broad category is human assisted movement. Okay. Yeah. That's a biggie that we haven't really touched on, and there's multiple possibilities there. One is going to be the deer farms. Okay, the captive servid industry. That industry is built on movement of animals, moving them from place A to place B. In the United States, there have been over 80 uh, game farms that have been detected CWD positive. Okay, in Canada, there's been just under 100 elk farms now that where CWD has been detected. So, is this a risk factor? Absolutely. Oh, there are some. There are some mainstream wildlife groups who've proposed a ban and i'm not talking like like radical and virals but i mean like hunter-based wildlife groups that propose the idea that we should ban intrastate deer traffic or no interstate deer traffic right and And some states some states have actually uh some states have never had a captive servant industry lawful uh, there's been a few states that have, through citizen initiatives, led to legislative action to get rid of the industry. There is oversight um, to a degree. There's oversight on interstate movement of animals. But the, like I said, this is one risk factor. Yes. Now, in, we bring it home to Wisconsin here. We've got, um, we've got three uh, game farms, shooter facilities or you know, whatever you Pay want to call them. Whatever you want to call them. Like, like uh, high fence operations high in Wisconsin? High fence operation. There's a lot of them in Wisconsin. Anyway, there's three of them in the, in the northern part of the state of Wisconsin where CWD has been detected. And the typical, the historical, the, the response from uh, management community, the agriculture or natural resources, is to depopulate that facility, to stamp out disease, kill all the animals in it, right? So we now have three in the northern part of the state uh, where they have not been depopulated. There are, you know, these facilities are allowed to stay in business, um, restock animals, so multiple CWD positives. These facilities are in deer country. So we have wild deer on the other side of the fence. Also, some dude can pretend, can pay to pretend to go hunting. 
That's it. So he like some guy that can't stomach the idea that you'd have to go out and try and maybe cope with failure would be like, I could just pay some money and be guaranteed success. Yeah. Because what I'm interested in pay by the inch is getting what I paid for, getting what I came for. That's probably true. (laughs) I probably shouldn't comment on that. No, don't. Don't comment on um, that. That's me talking. But these are the uh, these very definitely pose a transmission risk, an epidemiologic risk to free ranging deer on the other side of the fence. And so these are when I talk to people in the northern part of the state, they say, well, what are the risks? Well, the risks are, you know, things we talked about, deer to deer to deer movement, and then anthropogenic or human assisted movement. One of those is the captive deer industry and the existence of these positive facilities where if a fence goes down or there's nose to nose contact through the fence, that disease could leak out of that facility. But another one we haven't talked about is movement of carcasses. Oh, well, then there's the third that I wanted okay. to ask about because there's some of these facilities. And you can go out and watch the YouTube videos uh, at these facilities, and they're put on by the captive, captive servant industry about how, here's how we do our deer. And they run them through just like I run cattle through a chute, and they're taking urine, and they're taking, uh, you know, any kind of gland for for deer attractants for lures yeah. for lures oh. and now and now they're selling that stuff in a bottle and i mean you go into any sporting goods store and you see this stuff are there any restrictions well i guess you would know that necessarily or may, or may not want to comment on it but i started thinking about that so now i can go into the you know bob sporting goods store or whatever and buy a bottle of doe urine in estrus and take that out and you know spray it around and possibly spread am i is it, that's not. It can't is it be a far risk? Is, is it, it a risk? risk? Yes, it's a risk. Is it a numerically large risk? You know, it's hard to say. It's and it probably, depends on it's the facility. And sure, all sure, sure. But let's go back to. I'd I'd like to come back to that. But let me roll up the the carcass management yeah, issue because I think that's a significant one. So, you know, come back. We've got you know that slow deer to deer animal movement that it's it's hard to change that one. But then we have human-facilitated disease movement. We talked about it originally with raccoon rabies. Mm-hmm. We moved raccoons with rabies around. Mm. So we move deer with CWD around. We moved uh, elk with CWD to South Korea. Very clear. So the industry has a role, but carcasses are another one. Mm-hmm. So let's say you go out hunting in Wyoming in Converse County, and you kill the mule deer buck of a lifetime. Yeah, and, you know, five-year-old deer, and like I said, it's coin flip. Say he's got CWD. So you bring that carcass, you know, back to your domicile, and you butcher it yourself Mm -hmm. because that's what you've always done. Well, you've got a few hundred acres here. You know, there's, there's parts left over when you're done butchering. You've got the spinal column. You've got the skull. All the, good, all, all the parts, all the parts where, where infectious agent is concentrated. What do you do with that waste material? Do you dump it out on the back 40? If you do that, does that constitute a very real risk of, of introducing infectious agent to a naive, susceptible host population? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. 
So many states and many localities have introduced bans on carcass movement. Minnesota's done it. Um, you know, Michigan's working on one. We've had some some carcass movement regulations. Like you can, here move, in you can move your processed meat, but- processed meat, and a clean skull cap, yeah. but but leave the rest behind type yeah. thing in the area where you found right. it. Right, yeah. and so that's a very real risk that has been dealt with by regulatory means, but regulations don't cure everything. We need education to go along mm-hmm. with it. Because if you went to Colorado and, or Wyoming and killed that big deer and brought it home, you might not know that you were violating the law. So we have to have education to go along with it. Yeah. And, and, and the answer is to that, if, you know, if you're going to do that, make sure that those carcass parts don't end up out on the back mm-hmm. 40, that they go to a landfill or end up underground where any infectious agent is not available to be picked up, ingested or inhaled by another deer. So that one's easy yeah. if we know what we're doing and we pay attention to it. So the carcass movement bands um, have, have a place. But when we when we boil it down, is there a way to appropriately manage carcasses? The answer is yes. Make sure it ends up underground. You know what's interesting about those bands is that it's never like Colorado saying don't export. Hey, yeah, nobody hasn't. When you when you guys band. leave, yeah. leave all the bones and the skulls here. Oh, it's Michigan where you're saying, taking it to. Yeah, don't bring those elk bones from Colorado right? here. Right, yeah. it's an import. You think I, of it I've yet to see state, it. At least. Yeah, because yeah. the people that have it, like get that shit out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can remember my dad going out west hunting, and they would bring the whole uh, the mule deer, the elk, whatever. You know, they packed them with ice and brought them back. I remember you know butchering them at the facility here. Where did those bones end up? And it, I used to be a little bit of a conspiracy theorist in this whole thing. Oh, there had to be some guys down there who brought in one of those big monster bucks from someplace to improve their genetics. Well, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? So they let it out down there in, in the Mount Horeb area, and so it's yeah, out cut loose on their farm. Like, who yeah, boy, don't shoot the deer with the tag in its ear, you know that kind of thing. Um, or, or it was a facility there, or it was something like that, and then uh, it could have been innocuous. Yeah, hunter, just some old, just, you know, some old boy like my dad, who, you know, bringing his his, and and that's what they did. You know, it's just what we did. I know a lot of people that would like to pin it on your dad. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's un, it's unlikely, but that any one individual. But if we're looking for theories about how disease got to a place like Wisconsin, 900 miles from the nearest infected area in the state of Colorado, we have those possible explanations. Was it deer to deer to deer? It's not very likely that a deer from Colorado got up and walked and crossed the Mississippi and came to Mount Horeb to settle down. So then we start looking at the other possibilities. Could it have been human-assisted movement either of live Live deer deer. to release out in that area? Yeah. yeah, it's a possibility. Pretty hard to prove at this point in time. Game farm could it, here. Could it have been a hunter who inadvertently brought a positive back and, you know, and carcass parts ended up out on the back 40? Absolutely, that's possible. Could it have been other materials? Um, it's real interesting that, that prions themselves, it turns out, bind to some soil particles. They bind to clay particles much better than they do to sand particles. And and that's a, when we think about that deer who's shedding infectious agent yeah. out into the environment. Well, when it rains, it all ought to wash away into the into the river, and it'll end up in the Mississippi, and it ought to be a problem down in the in the Gulf Delta, right? 
Well, it turns out the prions themselves can bind very tightly. They form a chemical bond with some soil particles, which helps explain why they don't wash away and why they remain in the environment, because they can be bound to yeah. soil particles. Especially clay, which doesn't clay. erode like right. sand or loam does. Yeah. Now, from a, from a disease standpoint, there's another part of that. It turns out when prion protein molecules are bound to clay particles, they are more infectious than they were on their own. It turns out that their infectivity is increased nearly 700-fold in that bound state, okay? And, and we've, we've seen where, you know, a cow's stomach is a pretty yeah. harsh place. And you would think that if you put prions into a cow's stomach, that four-chambered stomach, that it would degrade. And actually, it does degrade uh, prions quite a bit. It huh. lowers the titer. But if these prions are bound to soil particles it increases their infectivity. So maybe these soil particles help act as chaperones through the system uh, to get in. Yeah. So they're bound tightly and they're more infectious. Now, you talked about the, the possibility of a bottle of urine. Yeah. Okay. So urine is collected at captive deer facilities, okay, um, or captive elk facilities where they have grates under the floor and the deer, you know, urinate. And so the, it's, it's collected up in theory, you know, processed, purified to some degree, um, and aggregated together. And then sooner or later, it ends up on a sporting goods shop or you can buy it online, things like that for a lure, you know, doe and estrus. So there's a, currently a great debate going on. And some states have taken proactive action and they've said, hey, don't use urine-based lures in our state. Several mm. states have done that because they identify that there is a risk, a small risk, but there is a risk. And if we've learned anything in Wisconsin, if you don't have CWD now, you want to keep it yeah. that way. And so other states have paid attention. They're putting in strong protective measures. Don't bring carcasses into my state. Don't bring live deer into my state. And don't use urine-based lures in my state. And that's a decision that a state makes on their own. Yeah, I mean, so a state, even if you just look at a state's function as like protecting, you know, even from the most conservative thing, facilitating business, you're protecting the deer hunting industry. Yeah. Protecting Which the is a integrity. much bigger industry than the piss industry, and it's a much bigger industry than the captive deer industry. Wisconsin makes way more money selling deer licenses and having people hunt wild deer than they do being a than they do being a service for the captive deer industry. Right. So science has shown pretty clearly that you know a deer with CWD is shedding infectious agent in their urine, but it's pretty dilute. Okay, uh, so the argument is that if you have a bottle, you know, a one ounce bottle of deer urine, it's not enough. Even if it did have CWD prions in it, it's likely not enough mm. to transmit disease. Gotcha. That's okay. the opinion from the industry or from science? By well, those promoted, things aren't it's, distinct. It's, it's promoted by it's promote that's that's promoted by the industry right now. Yeah, um, that the bottle of urine has it's it's negligible risk. Okay, but one of the things. So we just talked about what happens to a prion protein when it binds to soil particles, and that really hasn't been entered into the equation. Mm. 
So how do people use deer lure? I mean, some of them are going to squirt it into cotton balls in the top of an old 35-millimeter film cam canister case, yeah. hang it from a branch of a, of a tree. Others are going to spray it all over either a mock or a real scrape, yeah. which is kind of a deer magnet. So lots of animals come there. So now let's just suppose that a bottle of urine did have prions in it, which wasn't enough. If we squirted it in a deer's mouth, it wouldn't be enough to give that deer CWD. But now we're squirting it on the ground where those prions might bind to soil particles, and a deer might lick that soil and ingest that prion protein that's now bound to clay particles. And increased in... 700 times, times more the in, the, in, the infectivities. I think the paper says 680. I was rounding to 700. Fair enough. So that hasn't been entered into, into the equation yet. Is that enough? I don't know. Yeah. I can't, I honestly, I can't answer that question. Is that enough of an increase in concentration where that bottle of urine constitutes a risk? I can't answer that question. But a question I can answer, that if you are a state agency, whose responsibility it is to look out for the welfare of that deer resource for current and future generations of people in your state. If you've seen the impacts of CWD and you believe you don't have it and you want to do everything you can to keep CWD out of your state, is it a reasonable thing for that state to promulgate rules to say, hey, we'd prefer if you didn't use urine-based lures in, your, in, in our state? I think it's very reasonable that a state making that decision, mm -hmm. they've looked at the information, they're making a calculated decision on the level of risk they're willing to incur on behalf of the people of their state. How can you argue with that? Yeah. And if an overwhelming body of evidence were to emerge that contradicts that, they could walk it back. Lift the ban. Yeah. Aren't there uh, synthetic-based lures that that people use? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I gave up on that stuff. I figure if I can't, in sitting in a tree stand, if I can't have a deer <laughs> walk up close to me, I, you know, probably having lures isn't the way I want to go. Yeah. Well, folks will try all manner of stuff. All you have to do all is right, walk Giannis, You got any concluding thoughts? I heard you smoking cigarettes up in your stand brings them in. <laughs> well, I know that, try that well, instead. Doug Buckman Dern, um, there's special, mm. has special properties of his own urine. Which is very enticing to deer. Yeah, I got away from using photo, lures. I just piss in my own scrapes. He has <laughs> photo. He's a lot of evidence. photo documentary evidence that that uh, Doug Buckman urine is the most potent lure. But I don't know. I want. I'd have to test your urine to make sure it's not positive. Well, yeah, I, I, I was I using it in Montana, to take but I'm going to quit doing that shit. now I'm yeah, he was. Doug has actually something. been sending his urine around <laughs> <Yeah>. from the <laughs> CWD area well, outward. Oh, so you want. Doug, you got a concluding thought? I've, I've, got, oh. a f I've got a few, if Please. you'll humor me. Yeah. Give me a couple minutes here. Because it would kind of boil down. I get asked yeah. all the time, what can I do? What can people do about CWD? And people, individual hunters, can't cure CWD. They're not going to create the vaccine, things like that. So, But what can people do? Well, one of the things I think is really important is to be knowledgeable about really what CWD is. It's things that we've talked about today. Now, if you go to some sportsman's clubs or go to hunting camps or go to a tavern and you get into a conversation about CWD, you'll hear some things about CWD that will make you scratch your head. Could really? Yeah. And, and so 
alternative points of view are out there. There's places on the, on the World Wide Web that, you know, if you trick, looked up facts about CWD or the truth about CWD, you might hear some things that are vastly different than what we've heard today. That, that's a generally a good Google uh, tip is never type in the truth about yeah. <laughs> the truth about X is a good way to get the not truth. Yep. I think it's really important. If people have a better understanding of what CWD is, what the risks are, what the potential outcomes down the road are, that they'll care about CWD. But they need to learn about it. They need mm. to get accurate information. So if you're going to Google, go to scholar.google.com and enter in CWD and prion disease. And there mm. you'll, get, you'll get all your links will be peer-reviewed scientific publications. So learn about CWD. And, and discuss CWD, kind of the way we're doing here today. I think that's really, really important. Another thing is obviously going to be working with government. If you don't like what you see, if you don't like the fact that, you know, captive servant operations with CWD are still out there on the landscape, haven't been depopulated, work with government. If you don't like the way your natural resource agency is responding to CWD, work with government. It's not going to do much good to sit in hunting camp and, you know, gripe about the mm. DNR. That's, it's really not effective. It might be fun. It might be entertaining, but it's really not effective. So work with government at the appropriate levels Get and engaged. recognize and engage and, and recognize that the DNR is, has, you know, natural resource agency and agricultural agency are working with a set of laws created by legislators. Mm -hmm. And so quite often, the DNR is not the appropriate level. If you want to seek change, you're going to have to talk to the legislative That's the bodies. That's the Doug Duran mantra. Yep. Is he talks a lot about people who are blaming the DNR, blaming the State Fish and Game Agency for things that are coming from the legislature. Right. The DNR has to work within the, the statutory guidelines provided by the legislature. And those people are voted in. And they are responsible to uh, the voter. to their constituents. So working with government is a big one. Another way of working with government, though, is is promoting surveillance. You know, we've seen mm -hmm. in in state after state, there's fewer dollars available for surveillance. So the Wisconsin DNR has surveillance has gone down. Uh, many other states surveillance has gone down because they don't have the money to do it. So the only way we learn more about distribution and prevalence of CWD is to do surveillance. So that's another way you can have an impact by talking to government. Mm -hmm. Another one's promoting research. Things like you know, epidemiological research, learning about how disease moves, learning about more about the risk to humans, learning about the risk to domestic livestock, learning about the possibilities of vaccines. We do that through research. And the amount of money available for, for disease research has diminished greatly over time. So there's places where you can work with government. But now, even more, what can a hunter do? Well, mm -hmm. we talked about it. You can hunt deer. You know, say, say, I believe that you know, taking deer off the landscape, reducing densities, is good from a whole host of reasons in addition to disease management. If you feed and bait, those are probably not good things. Those could be considered risk factors. So the analogy there, a great one, is if you have young kids and you put them in daycare. If all the kids in daycare were healthy, daycare would be healthy, and your kid would never come home and give you some illness that you didn't want. But that's not the reality. So one little kid 
will go into daycare with a cold or the flu, spread it around to everybody else, and then those children go home to their respective families. So now let's move that into the deer world, where if you're baiting out there on the landscape, you're putting corn or some other attractant out there. If all the deer are perfectly healthy, it's not a bad idea, right? Okay, there's no risk of disease transmission. But now let's put a little bovine tuberculosis into mm-hmm. the system. Let's put a little bit of chronic wasting disease into the system. And now if we have one sick animal coming into that pile of bait or that attractant there, they shed infectious agent into that bait yeah, pile. Exchanging, that's later exchanging saliva and breath. Exactly. Yeah. So multiple animals are coming in, so it elevates the risk of disease transmission. So feeding and baiting, anything that artificially congregates animals in association with disease enhances the risk. Carcass management. It's a big one we talked about. So if you're going to go hunting in, you know, if I'm going to go hunting in, in Iowa County, Wisconsin, and I live in northern Wisconsin, or I live in Michigan or Minnesota, if I can get it across the border, if I butcher that animal myself, make sure that the carcass parts end up not in reach of a deer, not on the back 40, preferably at a landfill. That's a solid thing that hunters can do to help reduce the chance of, of CWD if movement. If you're burying it on your own, how deep? Uh, probably deep enough where a raccoon's not going to dig it up and expose it okay. back back to the deer. Gotcha. Um, now, some people might might go, oh, you shouldn't have said that something like that because there is uh, obviously always a chance that effluent would percolate down, get into groundwater. Uh, but that mantra back from the 70s, dilution is the solution to pollution, yeah. probably applies here that getting those carcass materials out of where they are bioavailable to healthy, naive, susceptible deer, that's what's key. Yeah. Um, if you want to get technical, if you, want to, if you really want to stop prion movement, you go to a landfill that uses a clay liner system. Mm-hmm. Remember clay binds prion mm-hmm. particles? Well, it turns out if you put a clay liner under a landfill, you will stop prion movement. So it won't go into the effluent that then gets discharged out onto the farmer's fields. Yeah. Okay? Mm. So there's, there's science behind that. I think the last thing that people can do to learn more about is, if you, especially if you hunt in an area where CWD is, get your carcasses tested. I mean, that's in line with recommendations coming from the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control. Or even the surrounding area. Yep. If you're, if you're close to disease, consider having your deer tested. Now, I'm not going to tell you not to eat it. That's your personal decision based on your own capacity to tolerate risk. But you've learned about CWD. You're doing your best not to contribute to movement of CWD. Getting that deer tested makes a, makes a you know, kind of mm-hmm. common sense. So, so those are the kinds of things. Like I say, when I walk into an audience and people say, well, what can we do? That's what I always try and close with. Here's the concrete things you can do. You can't fix it, but you can help. That's good stuff, man. And for most people to test it, it's their um, local game and fish or Department of Natural Resources? Talk to your natural resource agency. Um, if they are not able to accommodate it, and I believe most can, but if they're not, uh, you could talk to a veterinarian. You know, mm-hmm. a local veterinarian who has the ability to collect this tissue samples for a hunter and then submit them to a state diagnostic laboratory. So it's it's doable any place. Yeah, here in the cheese state, what do you guys call this state? Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was trying to be like a bad writer who uses like little synonyms here and there. Oh, so let's just like call this it. this 20-year-old crooner, like that kind mm-hmm. of line. 
uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, but what is this? <laughs> Help me out, man. Well, the cheese state. The cheese state. It's a, America, America's, America's Dairyland. America's Dairyland. Okay. Yeah, that's on the Here license in America's, plate. Thank you, Doug. Here in America's Dairyland, uh, it's free. Yeah, and I, I would say this. I, I know in our area, um, over at Rockbridge at the Rockbridge store, an old and dear friend of mine, Sharon Miller, uh, is one of the testing uh, facilities. And her son has gone through the training and takes out the lymph nodes and, and does all that work. And it's real simple. You can just drop the head off. Now, obviously, if you've got a big old monster buck and stuff that you're going to want to get mounted. Yeah, figure it out. But they'll, but they'll work with you on that. And then... Um, uh, so that's on this side of the county, or it's in just a few miles this way, but then a few miles the other way over in uh, Sauk County in Bear Valley, which is one of the high prevalence areas, uh, uh, a live look taxidermy over there, Bill, I uh, can't think of Bill's last name right now, but he mounted the standard. Um, he also uh, is a, 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 a testing, for, or not a testing facility, but a, a, a drop-off facility, and they too will take out the lymph nodes and do that whole thing. Yeah, you, you, just, you, they get paid for it. All you gotta do, is, yeah, you bring the whole damn head down, fill out a piece of paper, and then then it's like you'll get wait, the test results. Watch, back. watch yeah, the mail. You, your results were sent uh, were sent to you. I, <clears throat> so I'll give my concluding thought. How's that? Hit it, man. Uh, I feel better uh, listening to you today, and I thank very thank you very much for that. I mean, I feel like I, I've I've been spending a lot of time learning about it. Uh, as, as much as I can. And then there is a lot of misinformation. And, uh, but most of what I have read, you um, explained today in some of the ways that I didn't quite get it. And then boiling it down, which I think is so important. Uh, and so I, this has been a really important discussion for me. And uh, like you're an oak, that you're an oak guy, that makes a big difference too. So I saw Doug lose a big bet on oaks one time. That was true, but mm. I'm not sure about the person who decided. You're still not happy with the result. I'm still not happy with how we decided that. But continue your thought. Um, if it's, <laughs> <coughs> it's about 10 years ago. I need to hear this. <laughs> well, how many acorns does an oak tree drop? You know, it's one of those. It was one of those. Uh, so, and I think you gave, you, you reinforced much of what I'm, trying to promote one of the things i did want to clarify though that in the state of wisconsin that the department of natural resources yes enacts what the legislature uh in in most cases legislature tells them to um but deer farms are under the purview of the department of uh, department of agriculture trade and consumer protection yeah, it's yeah. farming not that's a common problem yeah and that's those two things are very those two agencies are seem to be very different. And in it, it the relationship varies depending on what state you're in. Mm-hmm. And in some states, the agricultural and the natural resource agency work very, very closely together. And in others, they don't work so closely together. And in other states, they have diametrically opposed opinions about you know how management should go. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. There's multiple. Um, some states' uh, management of the captive industry is under the natural resource agency. Others, it's under agriculture. It just depends on where you go. Mm-hmm. Man. Well, anyway, thank you very much. This is yeah. fabulous yeah. for me. You guys are welcome. This was enjoyable. Um, my concluder, Brian, thank you for like uh, being a federal researcher, man. It's, uh, there have been better times to be a federal scientist. We're going to bring it back. We're going to bring it back to where it's like 
where you guys get the credit you deserve. It's intriguing. Because you're able to look at stuff. You're able to look at stuff and look at problems that we're going to be facing down the road. And oftentimes, private industry just isn't on their radar yet. And you need to have some people who are able to exercise a level of curiosity and look out at what might be coming down the road and have the funding necessary to do so to to fill in some of the blanks for us and give us a sense of what's coming because it's just we would still be nowhere on this if we were relying on private industry. Who the hell is going to put money into this? We go back to the case of uh, plague in uh, prairie dogs and black-footed ferrets. It took over a decade to develop a vaccine candidate and to be able to then create an oral formulation in order to solve an endangered species problem. Where is the incentive outside of government research Mm. facilities to have the wherewithal and the capability to be able to do that and the patience to be able to do it? There is no place else. So there's value. I believe there's definitely value. Um, And success stories are not that common, but you have to work on these problems. Um, If we value our natural resources and our wildlife, we're posed today with more diseases than ever before. Um, Emerging infectious diseases are, are rampant out there on the landscape. And if we don't learn about them more, we, don't, we will not learn about those diseases. We will not learn about what caused those diseases. And we will not, maybe most importantly, learn how to effectively deal with, to mitigate or manage those diseases. So I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the compliment. Yeah, well, uh, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm indebted to you and, and for, for the lifestyle I have and the natural resources I enjoy. Um, I feel indebted to people like you in generations past who committed themselves to a professional occupation of, you know, working on natural resources. It's enjoyable. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. And Doug, thanks for hosting us at your house, man. Always your, a pleasure. You know, family. Even if this might be the last time. The family farm home, even though I just met a new person today <laughs> where I'm going to start hanging out instead of Doug's place. <laughs> it's just down the road, though, so we're going to stop by to use your phone. I'll, I'll yell up. I told Doug I'd come use the bathroom and get an internet connection on him. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.